Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, mental illness, and suicidal ideation that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. The morning of May 23, 1995, started slow for most of the student workers at the Harvard Crimson. Some made hasty final edits to forthcoming articles, while others printed and folded the day's paper. But for the editor-in-chief, things were anything but normal. They arrived that morning to find a mysterious unmarked envelope slipped under their door. They cautiously opened it and mulled over its contents for a few moments before emerging from their office and calling the other students inside. Something weird was going on. A group of writers flooded into the room, all craning their necks to get a good look at the letter. It featured a small black and white headshot, a school photograph by the looks of it, of a girl who none of them recognized. The editor read the accompanying text aloud. It said, Keep this picture. There will soon be a very juicy story involving the person in this picture. That was it. There was no more information and no signature at all. The Crimson staff were puzzled. They couldn't tell if the letter was meant to be an anonymous tip, a warning, or something else entirely. It stayed on the editor's desk for a few days, but when no explanation came to light, it went into the trash. Some of the students assumed the letter was part of some strange prank, but just days later, they would be proven wrong. Soon, the woman in the photograph would commit a crime so heinous that it would threaten the university itself. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. This week, we'll discuss Sinadu Tedessa and Trang Ho, two women who, against all odds, overcame adversity, immigrated to the United States, and attended Harvard University on full scholarships. It seemed like they had everything going for them, until on the day after final exams ended in 1995, they both ended up dead. Next week, we'll discuss the crime that horrified students and staff, the catastrophic fallout that left two families broken, and the permanent blemish, the tragedy, left on Harvard's reputation. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Sinadu Tedessa was born into turmoil. During the earliest years of her life, she endured poverty and civil war in her home country of Ethiopia. In 1982, when she was just seven years old, her father was captured by rebel forces and in prison for two years. To support Sinadu and her four siblings, her mother worked long hours as a nurse. As her children grew older, they tried to assist their mother with her back-breaking chores, chopping firewood, fetching water, and washing clothes by hand. But no matter how hard they tried to help, their mother always waved them away. She wanted her children to build better lives for themselves. She wanted them to study. Sinadu was raised to value education above all else. At the time, only one-fifth of children in the country attended primary school. Sinadu was grateful for the opportunities her parents gave her, but with her mother working such long hours, she often felt isolated, cut off from the community around her. Things became more manageable in 1984, when her father was released from prison, but the family was never the same. His time behind bars had left Sinadu's father deeply disturbed. Before I continue with his psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Sinadu's father was likely struggling with PTSD after harsh experiences as a political prisoner. In the mid-1980s, however, Ethiopia had few resources to devote to mental health education and infrastructure. The political instability of the country, along with a nationwide famine, meant that the government had other public priorities. As a result, psychological concerns were pushed aside. Stigma and misinformation dominated the cultural perspective on mental illness. According to the World Health Organization, the field of psychology and psychiatry is one of the most disadvantaged health programs in Ethiopia. Even today, Severe mental illnesses are often attributed to supernatural causes and treated by spiritual healers rather than modern health facilities. As recently as 2017, there were only two inpatient psychological hospitals in the country. 
possibly because they didn't have the resources to process the trauma of war, Xenadu's parents became paranoid and anxious. They discouraged their children from forming close friendships with kids their own age. According to her mother and father, nobody else could be trusted. Warnings like these made Sinadu shy around other people, but she couldn't help but attract attention in class. One teacher described her as the pearl of the school. Not only was she brilliant, she was dedicated as well. After her eighth grade year in 1987, Sinadu took an exam to compete for entrance into the famed International Community School, or ICS. She more than qualified, receiving the second highest score in the entire country. The only one who beat her, a boy named Neb Tilahun, became her first friend at ICS. As she continued to thrive in high school, Sinadu started to dream of earning a medical degree at an American university. It seemed unattainable at first, but as always, Sinadu surpassed expectations. When she took the SAT, she once again received the second highest score in the country, just behind Nab Tilahun. In 1992, at the age of 17, Sinadu was accepted to 24 American colleges and received a full scholarship to the most prestigious of them all, Harvard University. When Sinadu opened the acceptance letter, she felt the earth drop out from beneath her feet. The bare floors of her home suddenly transformed into marble walkways. The wooden walls sparkled as if made of solid gold. To her, Harvard was a mythical place. She had never left Ethiopia. Until then, her only escape had been through books. Now, her dream had been realized. Sinadu hugged the slip of paper to her chest. It promised knowledge, status, and pride. It promised success. She thought she might never stop smiling. After all these years, she felt like she had finally achieved something worth celebrating. She rushed to her bedroom to start packing. 4,500 miles away, a girl named Trang Fuang Ho experienced a very similar childhood to Sinadu. She was born in Saigon at the tail end of the Vietnam War. 1974 was the year of the tiger, which, according to her mother, prophesied that Trang was destined to be extraordinary. But the obstacles in her way were significant. At only five months old, Trang was separated from her mother and father. After North Vietnamese forces captured the city, she and her two sisters were sent to live with their grandparents. Her mother and father were placed in labor camps where they were starved and tortured. When they were released several months later, Trang's parents immediately started planning to run away to America where their daughters would be safer. About a year afterward, when Trang was two years old, the family attempted their first escape in a fishing boat. Soon after they took off, however, they were surrounded by members of the Viet Cong and forced to return home. Over the years, they tried to escape several more times, but were never successful. In 1984, when Trang was nine years old, her father finally decided that the family was simply too large to flee all at once. The only way they could safely make their way out of the country was to split up. 
So he, Trang, and her older sister stowed away on board a tiny ship bound for Indonesia while his wife and youngest daughter stayed behind. It was a dangerous journey of over 1,000 miles, but luckily, all three passengers arrived unharmed at a refugee camp on Galong Island. There, they studied English while waiting to receive visas to travel to America. It was a long wait. At last, in 1986, when Trang was 11 years old, she, her sister, and her father settled in Boston, Massachusetts. Trang enrolled at Boston Technical High School, where she quickly shot to the top of the class. She managed to excel academically, even while working to perfect her English and dealing with anxiety caused by her family's separation. Tring's father did his best to give her a happy life in Boston, but Tring knew that back in Vietnam, her mother and younger sister faced significant government harassment. The situation was tense. They had no way to escape the country, and Tring's father wasn't able to sponsor their immigration because he was living on public assistance. Still, Tring remained positive and motivated. One of her teachers described her as an aggressive learner. It was as if she dove headfirst into her studies to distract herself from the problems at home. In her spare time, she volunteered to tutor other refugees. She loved helping others, especially children, and dreamt of one day becoming a pediatrician. Meanwhile, her father labored for years to bring Tring's mother and sister stateside. Finally, in 1991, when she was 17 years old, they were able to immigrate to the United States. Unfortunately, the reunion wasn't everything Tring had hoped for. Her parents started arguing just days after her mother arrived. She accused Tring's father of cheating on her and of threatening her with a knife. Less than a month later, she filed for a restraining order and the family was fractured once again. Trang was sent to live with her mother and younger sister in Medford, Massachusetts. The next few months were difficult, but as always, Trang stayed laser-focused on her studies. In June of 1992, she took the stage to make her valedictorian speech at graduation. Her mother and father smiled at her from the audience. Trang looked away. She couldn't wait to go to college and get away from the stress of her family. Like Sinadu, Trang was accepted to every university she applied to. She even received a personal recruitment call from Harvard. They were most impressed by her application essay, in which she spoke not only of her own identity as a refugee, but of her commitment to lifting up others from similar backgrounds. At first glance, it seemed like Sinadu Tedessa and Trang Ho had a lot in common. They were both immigrants who excelled academically, and received full scholarships to study pre-med at Harvard. They each bore the heavy weight of their family's expectations, and as a result of their chaotic childhoods, they tended to be shy and quiet around others. They even were physically similar. Both girls were slim and around five feet tall. But they didn't share the same destiny. Soon, a crucial difference between them would become painfully clear. When we return, Trang and Sinadu try to adjust to their new lives at Harvard. 
Hey, Parkasters, looking for a more lighthearted listen? Then I've got the perfect podcast for you. The new Spotify original from Parcast called Incredible Feats. Hosted by comedian and podcaster Dan Cummins, Incredible Feats is a daily show spotlighting true accounts of mind-blowing physical strength, mental focus, and bizarre behavior. Join Dan every weekday as he goes behind the scenes and into the achievements of everyone from freedivers and body modifiers to ultramarathoners and moms. Incredible Feats is offbeat entertainment that's sometimes weird, sometimes wonderful, and always surprising. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Sinidu Tedessa and Trang Ho came from strikingly similar backgrounds. They had each traveled to America from war-torn home countries, seeking better opportunities in education. They both received full scholarships to study at Harvard beginning in 1992 and spent their freshman years trying to adapt to the social dynamics and educational rigor of the Ivy League. But the two of them dealt with their challenges very differently. Trang leaned heavily on her family in Medford, about a 15-minute drive from Harvard's main campus. Although her parents were in the midst of a divorce, she still visited her mother and sister nearly every weekend. At school, she wasn't the flawless student she used to be, maintaining a B-plus average rather than an A. Still, she was impressive, earning an assistant position at an oncological research lab co-authoring a paper in a renowned scientific journal and becoming active in the Vietnamese Students' Association. Sinidu, too, maintained a B average, sometimes struggling with the realization that she was no longer the smartest student in her class. Neb Talahun, the only person in Ethiopia who scored higher than her on the SAT, also came to Harvard. Although he and Sinidu kept in touch, they were both absorbed in their studies and gradually grew apart. To make matters worse, Sinidu had few family members to lean on. It's unclear exactly why, but she rarely called her parents and siblings back in Ethiopia. Although she had cousins living in the nearby town of Brookline, they didn't speak often. She felt increasingly alone and alienated in Massachusetts. She tried to find the kind of social connections Trang had, but the Ethiopian population at Harvard was tiny. Everywhere she went, Senadu felt like an outcast. To cope with her social isolation, she started keeping a diary. Senadu's freshman year journals were soon full of lamentations on her loneliness, interspersed with notes on American social customs. She believed that she had to learn to appear normal, that is, as Americanized as possible. She consciously attempted to hide behaviors that made others see her as foreign. She also tried to create a sort of recipe for interacting with Americans. She reminded herself constantly to make eye contact, practice the art of small talk, 
and never ramble or bring up uncomfortable subjects in conversation. Mena Demacy, a professor of political science, describes Sinadu's diaries as documenting her failed attempt to reconcile the old culture with the new culture. Many of her writings show Sinadu employing dissociative mechanisms to deal with her recent immigration. These have been described by doctors Leon and Rebecca Grinberg as an immigrant idealizing all aspects and experiences in the new society while at the same time devaluing the people and places he or she has left behind. Sinadu desperately wanted to make American friends, but her journals also showed that she was still plagued by the paranoia her parents instilled in her. She wrote that she never wanted to look vulnerable, fearing other people might take advantage of her. Because of her anxiety, Sinadu struggled to make connections in Massachusetts, the only somewhat close relationship she formed was with her roommate, Anna. Sinadu was fond of Anna, but the feelings weren't reciprocated. At the end of the spring semester in 1993, Anna told Sinadu she would be rooming with someone else the following year. Sinadu was furious, taking the decision as an insult and a rejection. In her diary, she cursed Anna calling her names, and wrote about her despair at having to find someone else to live with in the fall. That summer, Sinadu stayed with her cousins in Brookline over the break, but she was no closer to them than the other students on campus. During those months, she worked at a lab and spoke practically to no one. She could feel her loneliness growing by the day, tightening around her neck like a serpent. At one point, Sinadu grew so despondent that she wrote letters begging for friendship and sent them to strangers she randomly chose from a phone book. Her message included the following lines. I am desperate. Most of my days are long and boring. Even the days I call happy are randomly pierced with pain. My problem is that I am not bonding with people. I am so desperate. Please do not close the door in my face. I wait anxiously to hear from you. Mary Beth Johnson, a woman who received the letter, found its contents disturbing. She said that beneath the note's piteousness, she sensed aggression, the kind of plea which turns to rage at refusal. The letter identified Sinadu as a Harvard student, so Mary Beth sent it to the university dean's office. The note was placed in Sinadu's file, but despite her obvious distress, no one made any attempt to reach out to her. Sinadu felt helpless until she received her housing assignment for the 1993 academic year. She would be living in Dunster House, a gorgeous historic dormitory, and Trang Ho would be her roommate. Sinadu had met Trang in their science course the previous year and knew that Trang was friendly and well-liked. In her diary, she described the living arrangement as a beautiful chance. She looked forward to rooming with a girl she would make the queen of her life. Trang was completely unaware of how important their rooming assignment was to Sinadu. Shortly after they moved in together, Sinadu told her family that Trang was her best friend, despite the fact that they barely knew each other. Trang went out of her way to be kind to Sinadu in the dorm, but she already had a best friend, another Vietnamese student named Tao. It didn't take long for Sinadu to become jealous of Trang and Tao's relationship. 
In fact, Sinidu envied almost everything about Trang, her close friends and family, her high grades, and perhaps most of all, her ability to fit in at Harvard while staying connected to her Vietnamese identity. Sinidu grew more isolated and more desperate with each passing day, yet no one around her, including Trang, knew anything about her depression. She lived entirely within herself, never revealing the darkness inside her to the outside world. To the average student, Sinidu seemed quiet and happy. She and Trang were often seen eating lunch together in the dining halls and appeared to get along well. Sinidu took Trang to an Ethiopian restaurant in Boston, and Trang brought Sinidu to a Christmas party at the oncology lab where she worked. Shows of friendship like these made Sinidu rethink some of her negative opinions. In her journals, she reminded herself that she didn't have to own a person totally to be their friend. Nevertheless, when Trang was away with her family on the weekends, Sinidu had nothing to do but brood in their room, alone. Sinidu sat at her desk, her vision blurry as she tried to make sense of the words in her biology textbook. The sun had long set and the room was dark, but she didn't have the motivation to get up and turn on the overhead light. She dug her nails into her thigh. No matter how many times she read the same paragraph, she couldn't retain the information. Her mind was elsewhere. Trang, her only companion, was away in Medford, probably playing games, eating, and laughing with her sisters. Sinidu could hear their imagined laughter echoing endlessly in her mind. It emanated from the walls, mocking her, reminding her that everyone everywhere was having more fun than she was. Sinidu shut her book and stared at the wall. She could feel a torrent of sadness rising in her chest. She knew Trang didn't really like her. Nobody did. When people looked at her, they saw an awkward bookish girl who couldn't hold a conversation. She was worse than uninteresting. She was a freak. Then the feeling suddenly passed. For the first time, the scathing thoughts didn't bring tears to Sinidu's eyes. Instead, they quickened her pulse and tightened her jaw. They made her angry. Sinidu could tell her mental health was deteriorating. She felt anxious, depressed, and had little motivation to do anything except go to class. She reached out to the Harvard University Health Service and began seeing a counselor. But the mental health department was small and understaffed. They could only manage to offer her one counseling appointment a month, which wasn't nearly enough to curb her depressive symptoms. Making matters worse, she couldn't seek treatment outside the university because she had no insurance and little money. As she approached the end of their sophomore years, 19-year-old Sinidu spiraled further downward. She feared she would have to find yet another roommate, but surprisingly, Trang agreed to bunk with her again the following year. This was, in all likelihood, more out of convenience than desire. 
Nonetheless, Sinidu was ecstatic. Trank's choice to live with her again meant their friendship could still blossom. It might have been a rough first year together, but each semester brought another opportunity to grow closer. Perhaps, Sinidu hoped, they could even become real best friends. The fall of 1994 came quickly, and Trang would regret not picking a new roommate. Up next, tensions rise at Dunster House as Sinidu's mental health continues to decline. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Now, back to the story. Sinidu Tadessa and Trang Ho roomed together in 1993 during their sophomore years at Harvard University. Whereas Trang formed strong social connections, had a best friend named Tao, and visited her family often, Sinidu grew increasingly desperate for companionship. Unbeknownst to those around her, she started suffering from severe psychological distress. Although she reached out to Harvard's mental health services, they weren't equipped to offer her the help she needed. According to Dr. Tedla W. Yorgis, a director of mental health at the Multicultural Services Division Commission, foreign students are often at risk for undertreatment because mental disorders may be misinterpreted as assimilation problems, clinical depression as loneliness, and character pathology as traits of a foreign culture. Because of the poor care Sinadu received from Harvard, she was never formally diagnosed with any mental illness. However, Dr. Yorgis states that depression is the most prominent response that the immigrant state of dislocation brings about. From both her behavior and her journal entries, it seems likely that Sinadu was struggling with undiagnosed depression. New Yorker journalist and Harvard professor Melanie Thernstrom spoke to several psychologists about Sinadu's state of mind. Many agreed that Sinadu may have experienced manic episodes or suffered from schizotypal personality disorder. Unfortunately, her illness remained dangerously undertreated in 1994. Her dark feelings only intensified as she and Trang began rooming together that fall. Her behavior had starkly changed over the summer. The previous year, Sinadu had been very neat, but lately she'd become messy and careless. She tossed dirty clothing on the floor and left fruit sitting out so long that it rotted and attracted bugs. Trang didn't know what to make of the change in her roommate's habits. She didn't want to be confrontational. So instead of asking Sinadu to be tidier, she put up a cloth divider between their spaces. Even so, the arrangement was intolerable. Anytime Sinadu needed the restroom, she had to walk through Trang's space Anytime Trang needed to enter or exit the room, she had to go through Sinadu's side. Near the end of the fall semester, Trang spoke to the administrator at Dunster House about getting new accommodations in the spring. Her request was denied. Trang decided to finish out the year by spending as little time in her room as possible. Sinadu could feel Trang pulling away from her. 
In response, she became simultaneously possessive and pathetic. When Trang wasn't around, Sinadu started calling her family in Medford asking to speak with her. Trang's sister had no idea how to respond because Trang wasn't in Medford at all. She was on campus, purposely avoiding her roommate. Things only got worse in the spring of 1995 when 20-year-old Trang tried to reason with Sinadu. She explained that she didn't have any problems with Sinadu personally, but that she was just busy with her own studies and didn't have much free time to socialize. Sinadu wasn't fooled and made no attempt to change her possessive behavior. Finally, in April of 1995, Trang told Sinadu that she would be changing her accommodations in the fall. She'd asked two other girls to room with her and they had agreed. Sinadu was inconsolable. When Trang tried to leave their room, she followed her all the way out of Dunster House and onto the subway, sobbing and pleading with her to reconsider. Sinadu's behavior made Trang feel confused and guilty. Her friend Tao reassured her that it was okay to change roommates. After all, she wasn't doing anything wrong, no matter how much Sinadu tried to convince her otherwise. But a part of Trang still felt bad for her roommate. Although she didn't understand why Sinadu was so upset that she was moving out, she had never meant to cause any harm. She wanted to talk it out, but Sinadu refused to speak to her in person at all. Instead, she sent Trang a letter. She wrote, You'll always have your family to go to, and I am going to have no one. She also called Trang very mean for wanting to change roommates. Trang responded with a carefully worded letter of her own, which read, I have no resentment towards you. It's just our living habits are different. I have been very tolerant and as nice as possible to you. I respect you, so you should respect my decision. I hope we can still be friends. But Sinadu had no intention of continuing a friendship with Trang, who she now saw as a traitor. A few weeks later, when Trang forgot her keys and needed to be let into her room, Sinadu sat in bed and ignored her knocks. A security guard had to let Trang inside. Meanwhile, Sinadu lied to her cousins about the situation, telling them she was the one who initiated her and Trang's breakup. Although Sinadu's diaries continued to profess her desire for companionship, she began shrinking from social connection rather than desperately seeking it out. She withdrew further from Neb, a fellow Ethiopian student, who had been the closest thing she really had to a friend. He might have been the only person at Harvard she could relate to, yet he was left in the dark about Sinadu's emotional struggles. By May 1995, 19-year-old Sinadu was lower than she'd ever been. In the absence of mental health care, her loneliness had transformed into a fiery rage. Her paranoia increased. She was sure that everyone around her was secretly laughing at her, just waiting to reject her before they'd even given her a chance. She obsessed over Trang's traitorous behavior and started to plan her revenge. It's unclear exactly when her violent fantasies began, but in mid-May she wrote, the bad way I see out is suicide and the good way out killing, savoring their fear, 
and then suicide. Although it seemed like Sinadu's turn toward violence came out of nowhere, Dr. Randolph Catlin, Harvard's Director of Mental Health Services, said, If your self-esteem is shaky and very narrowly based, you may take a rejection as evidence that you as a person are not valuable, and that may make you enormously angry. A response is to destroy that person, or yourself, or both. Sinadu had repeatedly attempted to get better treatment through Harvard's counseling services. She had also tried, albeit in her own somewhat strange way, to connect with others. In her mind, she had exhausted all possible options. She came to the conclusion that other people would never like her. For that, they would pay. Sinadu sat in bed with her knees pulled close to her chest. On the other side of the room, separated from her by a thin hanging sheet, she could hear Trang and Tao laughing and speaking rapid Vietnamese. Though she couldn't understand what they were saying, Sinadu was sure they were making fun of her. They were probably talking about how weird she was or how she had no friends and spent all day lying alone in her room. The sound of their incessant giggling made Sinadu grind her teeth. She tried to steady her breathing, but it was impossible. Tears filled her eyes and her body grew hot with rage. Unable to take it any longer, she jumped to her feet and threw her blanket on the floor. She was done. She hated Trang and all of her loud friends. She didn't want to see or hear anyone anymore. Once and for all, she was going to make them stop laughing. On May 21st, 1995, the Sunday before finals week, Sinidu called Neb for the first time in nearly two months and asked him to meet her for lunch. At their meal, Sinidu wore makeup and short shorts, something Neb had never seen her do before. He didn't know how to react, but it certainly didn't seem like anything was wrong. He later said Sinidu seemed lighter somehow, like she just had a weight taken off of her shoulders. According to Dr. Catlin, when people struggling with suicidal ideation formulate a plan for their deaths, they often feel better momentarily. Whereas they were previously struggling to get by day to day, setting a date gives them a sense of control and freedom they may have previously felt themselves lacking. Sinadu continued to hide the depths of her anger from those around her, but it still bubbled just beneath the surface. Early that same week, she purchased two knives and a length of nylon rope. On Tuesday, May 23rd, she printed out an old school photograph and wrote an anonymous letter, which she then slipped under the door of the Harvard Crimson's office. None of the Crimson staff reported the message to school police or the administration. Its promise of a juicy story wasn't particularly sinister. It seemed more like a prank than a threat. For the rest of the week, Sinadu lived her life as normal. She took one of her final exams and managed to make an A. The validation no longer meant anything to her. Tests and grades seemed ridiculous in the face of what she was about to do. She had little motivation to show up for classes when she already knew she wouldn't be enrolling at Harvard for a fourth year. 
She watched with scorn on Friday, May 26, as Trang packed up her belongings with her best friend, Tao. She planned to head home to Medford for the summer soon. The next day, Trang and Sinadu both had a physics exam. Trang went to the library to study early that morning. When she left, she saw Sinadu sitting with her head in her hands, weeping. When Trang came back around noon, Sinadu hadn't moved. Trang tried to ask her if she was okay, but Sinadu waved her away. Not long afterward, Trang left to take the exam. Sinadu stayed behind, still sobbing. In total, Sinadu missed three tests. Anyone who knew her would have interpreted that as a major red flag, but no professors reported her absences. Trang had no idea what was going on. She assumed Sinadu was crying because she was just stressed, or at the very worst, because she'd failed an exam. On Saturday night, Trang and Tao went out to celebrate the end of the semester. Sinadu, alone in their room, sat staring at the knives she laid out on her desk. One of them was for hunting, the other for regular kitchen use. Sinadu considered them both and eventually decided to wield the hunting knife. It was larger, sharper, and stronger. It was for killing. She then fashioned the rope into a noose and stowed all three items away. She wouldn't need them until the next morning. Around midnight, Sinadu called her brother. She was curiously calm on the phone. According to him, the conversation was short and she seemed fine. Only later would he realize that this was his sister's way of saying goodbye. When Trang and Tao finally came back to the room around 2 a.m., the lights were still on. Sinadu was lying completely motionless in her bed, staring up at the ceiling. After watching her for a moment, Trang flipped the lights off. She and Tao crawled into bed together, sleeping head to toe, a common arrangement for women in Vietnamese culture. Trang slept soundly that night, while Sinadu laid awake, staring straight ahead. Now she just had to wait for the sun to rise, one last time. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of Sinadu Tedessa and Trang Ho's story. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Crimes of Passion for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. We'll see you next time, when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs.
Hey, Parcasters, don't forget to check out the brand new Spotify original from Parcast, Incredible Feats. Join host Dan Cummins as he explores true accounts of weird, wonderful, and all-out wild achievements. New episodes premiere daily, Monday through Friday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.